From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is Boom Bust HQ Trivia. Last we left off, it was November 2017. Russ Yusupov, the co-founder of HQ, had just threatened to fire his host, Scott Rogowski, while on the record with Taylor Lorenz, an internet culture reporter. In my head, I was just like, I don't understand why you're yelling at me. Like, this is this, like, really positive story of the host. It's true that, all of Scott's complaints of micromanaging aside, employees are usually expected to ask permission to speak to journalists on the record. And that's especially true in the tech industry, which is famously tight-lipped in the press. But also, I'd wager that threatening to fire your star host over a single interview causes a much bigger PR problem than the original offense. Taylor was rattled by the whole conversation. So she went to her editor at the Daily Beast, Ben Collins, and told him what happened. And Ben just started laughing. And Ben goes, oh, really? Go to your computer right now. I want you to make sure that you transcribe absolutely every single thing he just said. We're going to call him back. They spent the next morning reshuffling the story. What was originally a fluff piece on everyone's favorite new trivia host was now a bizarre tale about how his boss might fire him at any second. Right before they were ready to publish it, they called Russ again. Russ picks up right away, and Ben is like, Hi, this is like Taylor's editor, and FYI, we are running this story. And what do you mean you're going to fire Scott, the breakout star of your app, because we write a puff piece? And by the way, oh, so Russ actually, when we called him back, brought Scott into the room. Scott just so happened to be in the HQ office, minutes away from hosting that day's 3 p.m. game. I'm in the studio, adjusting my tie in front of the camera, getting ready to go live. Russ knocks on the studio door and says, hey, Scott, I've got this reporter in the Daily Beast on the line. You mind just stepping out and talking to me for a second? So I leave the studio and he pulls me into a small conference room and he's got me on speakerphone with Taylor. And Russ says, I've got Scott here. Listen, Scott, they're saying that I threatened to fire you. Scott, tell them that's not true. I never threatened to fire you. And I said, hi, Scott here. Uh, no, Russ has never threatened to fire me. That's crazy. I don't know where you would get that from. I'm here. Everything's good. Because Scott was in the room, he suddenly started to backtrack. He was like, oh, well, I never said that I was going to fire him. And Ben was like, you actually did. And we have that. And I look at Russ and he's giving me one of these, you know, shaking his head with the hand under his neck motion, like not true, not true. But in that moment, I mean, my heart sunk into my stomach. Like your reality just shatters and it doesn't, it almost didn't compute. I was so thrown by it. And I just looked at Russ and I was like, you know what, man, I have your show to host right now. You got to deal with this yourself. I did the show. When I left the studio, Taylor had published the story already. And that's when the, the S hit the fan. Over the course of reporting this podcast, I interviewed a lot of former HQ employees. Pretty much all of them remembered this unfortunate series of events as a turning point in the company. Some of them even had a name for it, the Sweet Green Incident. Once the internet got a hold of that story, it launched Scott into a new echelon of fame, one that would give him more leverage within the company, all while messing up the shiny veneer of this new startup. But all drama aside, this is when the growth of the company completely shifted. What was once a promising idea with a modest user base was suddenly spiking in every way possible. No one saw it coming, and no one could prepare for it. Rusty Weiner, the animation director we met last episode, 
says that's the moment HQ lost control. The problem was that article just made it get way too popular. That wasn't supposed to happen. So that spike in popularity just made it grow too quickly. It was too viral. The sweet green incident had all the ingredients to blow up online. It was a story about a popular new app. It fed into the stereotype of the controlling tech founder. And compared to most other tales of corporate misconduct, it was just absurd. He cannot say that he likes to eat at Sweetgreen. We do not have a brand partnership with Sweetgreen. Not only that, but the piece also had what social media experts might describe as a call to action. Those people who were self-professed Scott Rogowski fans, well, they were absolutely determined to save their dear quiz daddy. So they went online to defend him. Here's a sample of some tweets from that day. I'm worried about Scott from HQ. I feel like he's imprisoned. Pray for quiz daddy. I would go with Scott wherever he chooses to spread his wings. It's time to put aside all our differences and hashtag free Scott. Yes, there was a free Scott hashtag. To be clear, Scott wasn't imprisoned or in danger, but he was having quite a day. I do remember watching this Twitter go viral and then hopping on my city bike to go uptown and being stopped at the corner of University Place and 14th Street at a red light. I look over at a pedestrian, total stranger, happen to look over, he's on his phone reading the Daily Beast story. And I just, he looks up at me and he's like, this is you. I was like, yeah, my, my picture's in there. And we're looking at each other. He's like, I was like, yeah, man, crazy day. Meanwhile, Russ ran damage control. He hired a publicist, and that publicist orchestrated a photo shoot of Russ and Scott at Sweetgreen. The plan was that Russ would tweet the photo to Taylor, admitting he was a cliche, stressed-out startup founder, and apologize for being a jerk. The whole thing was meant to show that this was no big deal. Everyone overreacts sometimes. People shouldn't read too much into it. But in reality, Scott was still really upset. Colin was just basically pleading with me, like, look, man, you know, I know, I know, you know, we really need you to do this. This is super important for us. We need to get over this story and get that positive spin on this and move on. And, you know, we're going to take care of you, you know, like, trust me, like, you know, we'll take care of you. And I just said, for you, for the sake of the company, I'll do it. But I expect to be taken care of, essentially, you know, after this slap in the face. Yeah. That stunt did a good enough job of making things appear less dire. But it couldn't change the fact that this story was spreading everywhere. If you were just a normal person surfing the internet that day, chances are it crossed your feed. And if you'd never heard of HQ Trivia before, well, now you had. Not only that, but you could tune into a live game at 9 p.m. to see what exactly was going on. HQ was no longer just a live trivia app. It was a live soap opera, too. I think the most intriguing thing to everyone was to read about the drama about him and Russ. So... People kind of tuned in to find out what are these, what's the CEO and head of the show fighting about. And they got there and they got a new experience. That's what made it blow up a little too fast. Technical difficulties. That, that about sums things up. And I mean everything. But here I am. Hello. Hi. Scott. Nice to be here. Having a totally normal Tuesday. Completely average day. Nothing going on. Look, we are all good here at HQ. HQ, how are things in your neck of the woods, nape of the way, huh? 
A stream of comments runs at the bottom of the app during every HQ game. And that night, people were writing things like, I thought you got fired, Scott. And he lives. Most notably, viewership got a boost. There are a lot of you tonight, over 100,000 HQDs in the game. You want to play? You ready to play? For the record, a spokesperson for HQ told me that the Daily Beast article had neither a positive nor negative effect on the company's growth. But at that point, 100,000 viewers was still a large crowd for a weekday game. Despite all the drama, or frankly, because of it, the app was on its way to becoming, as Rusty said, too viral. What does that mean exactly? Too viral. Becoming a meme is no longer a freak phenomenon on the internet. Going viral has become an important function of our economy. Memes drive everything from the products we covet, to the entertainment we watch, to the ideologies we internalize. Which is why the marketing strategies for everything from peanut companies to Netflix releases now revolve entirely around engagement. Even our public spaces are being shaped to be social media bait. And that motivation applies to people too. I am loath to admit it, but I often catch myself measuring the value of what I put out in the world in likes and retweets. Which reminds me, when you have a moment, please rate and review this show wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. Anyway, there's a really good reason people strive for virality. Catching a wave of internet attention at the right time can do magical things. It can turn a sex worker's Twitter thread about a wild weekend into the Sundance hit, Zola. It can help a 14-year-old named Jalea Harmon bring her TikTok dance moves to the NBA All-Star game. It can transform a kid from Georgia who once used a closet as a recording studio into Lil Nas X, a record-breaking pop star. But when you're not prepared for it, getting too popular too quickly can go haywire. Maybe you wear a controversial Halloween costume. It goes viral and suddenly you're without a job and fielding hate mail. Or you end up in the front row of a presidential debate in a funny sweater and a few days later, the internet digs up the entirety of your posting history on Reddit. Casey Newton, the Silicon Valley editor at The Verge, thinks that going viral is just hard to process. When we say, you know, you went viral, I think what we really mean is all of a sudden, maybe millions of people are paying attention to you. And I think it's fair to say that most human beings were not built to withstand the scrutiny of millions of people, right? When millions of people sort of see something that you did or or read something you wrote, a big absolute number of those people are going to find fault with it, right? And they're going to come after you. And so it can be a really disorienting experience, I think, for a lot of folks. It can be bad for a startup, too. Sure. Most social networks need a critical mass of users to even qualify as interesting or relevant. And most young startups that experience high growth are expected to be chaotic. But too much attention often results in an unpredictable online community, meaning they can be there one day and gone the next. And from a business perspective, a surge of new people often makes it impossible to keep up or know what kind of company you're even building. MG Siegler, a partner at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures, can attest. Often when you launch a start, when you put a new company and a new startup out in the world, you're sort of thinking that, you know, a few people will try it out, then a few more people will try it out, then a few more people will try it out. But imagine, as was the case certainly back in the day with the App Store, where you might launch, you might be featured in the App Store, and all of a sudden you'll have, you know, 
200,000 users or something using it overnight. And that not only can break down behind the scenes the system, but it also just breaks the way that you're sort of thinking about how you should be sort of building the company and everything going forward. Because these metrics, while great to see on day one, are likely fleeting. So there's this catch-22 of the attention economy. It simultaneously rewards and punishes virality. But beyond this newfound user base and flood of press requests, the extra wrinkle to HQ was that it was literally designed to broadcast its metrics of success in public. The whole world could see that viewer count in the top corner of the screen every time they logged on to play. And that's a lot to live up to, both psychologically for employees and for those up at the top driving the goals and expansion of the company. Back to the Sweet Green incident. Many of the former employees I spoke to thought this Daily Beast article foreshadowed what was to come for HQ. For one, it revealed that Russ could be a somewhat erratic manager. We'll get to that in a later episode. And however discouraging it was for Scott, this highly public spat with his boss also launched his career and fortified him as the face of the company. But maybe most importantly, this incident made HQ the fascination of major media outlets. I remember texting Scott and saying, is Russ a genius? Did he stage this whole thing fighting with you? Like, I knew that it wasn't going to tarnish the company, that there was this story about the CEO and the talent having a dispute. I knew that was going to be great for us. Following their sweet green dust-up, HQ's new publicist led them on an apology-slash-publicity tour. There was a brief mea culpa in the New York Times in which Russ said that, quote, there's a lot of pressure to get everything right all the time, and I admit that I made a mistake. But mostly he wanted to talk about how talented he and Colin were. The press coverage itself distilled HQ's workplace dynamic. Colin preferred to keep his head down and focus on his work, so he mostly skipped those opportunities. Russ was soaking up the attention. But Scott, Scott was the true face of the company, the man of the people. And let's be honest, the camera loved him. Occasionally, that meant Russ and Scott, survivors of the Sweet Green incident, would end up in joint interviews like the CBS This Morning hit. The game's host, that's Scott Rogowski, is here. So is HQ Trivia CEO and co-founder, that's Russ Yusupov. Welcome, 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 guys. If you listen closely enough, you can pick up on a subtle tug of war to take credit for the app's success. My co-founder, Colin, and I, we had created Vine previously and never stopped experimenting since then. We thought, hey, let's combine some of our favorite elements of mobile gaming, live video, and TV production, mash them together and create an experience that uh, people, frankly, have never had before. But I think the secret sauce are the hosts, and you in particular, Quiz Daddy, which is what he calls himself. <laughs> I think people call say, me that. No, I don't know. Quiz, Quiz Daddy. Daddy Cumiro Numero Uno is how he starts. Numero Numero Uno. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes <laughs> there are glitches, guys, which is very frustrating. People get so mean. How do you handle that, Scott? And what are we doing about the glitches? Right. It's well, frustrating, Ross, the glitches. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it is unfortunate, but we're we're paving new ground here. This this kind of thing hasn't been done before, and our our engineering team is uh, you know every day they're working on making the service better, more reliable. And we should talk about the glitching for a second, since it's related to what made HQ so innovative and for a moment so valuable. HQ's edge was that one, it could host a bunch of people all at once, but also two, it could process participants' feedback in real time. Here's how that worked. HQ ran on something called WebSockets. When you visit a website on your computer, 
The system you're working with usually fetches a page and serves it up to you, like a mailman might deliver you a letter. But the WebSocket system was an open two-way channel, more like a phone call. HQ engineers would prep for every trivia game by trying to predict how many people would play. So they'd set up, say, 100 virtual servers in the cloud, each of them serving about 10,000 customers. The challenge they faced at 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. every day was ensuring the flow of that information continued uninterrupted. If those engineers undershot the size of the audience that night, the servers would get overloaded and start shorting those connections. And that's how you got all that pesky glitching. One engineer told me, the idea that your entire user base uses your app twice for 15 minutes a day was scary. You do something wrong and the entire user base finds out right away and everything's on fire. And so, as the number of viewers in the top left corner kept doubling from week to week, HQ's engineers scrambled to keep up. On this record-breaking Sunday night, what records are being broken? Well, for one, the fact that there are over 348,000 players in the game tonight, that's more people than St. Louis and Pittsburgh, including Claire, Ronzone, Dante Smith, and New York Nico. That's more people than Ron Howard has baseball caps. We're up to 350,000 right now. That number kept building over the holidays as people went home and introduced the game to their families. On Christmas, news anchor Dan Rather shared a Facebook post about how he'd played the game after his grandson, Martin, showed it to him. Scott, who never misses an opportunity, later interviewed the two of them for a live late-night show he hosted. The question was something like, you know, which of the following people, you know, who of the following people were not uh, involved in the Iran-Contra affair? And it's John Poindexter... James Baker, and I think Ayatollah Khomeini, right? And, you know, we immediately look to Grandad, and Grandad says nothing for 9.5 seconds <laughs> of the 10 seconds. I mean, zero. And finally, at the last second, he goes, Baker. Martin gets a lot of credit for us even playing HQ. Yeah. Because this was, after all, Christmas Eve. And his grandmother, and I'd say to some extent myself, I mean, we felt like having a nice dinner, spend some time uh, hymn singing and reading scripture, which Martin was all in favor of, but he did say, maybe we need a slight change of pace. Pretty soon, the company was fielding requests for collaborations with really big-name programs and brands. As HQ was gaining followers, gaining traction, certainly going viral towards the end of 2017, all of a sudden, I guess the company, the board decided, all right, we need to beef up operations. We need to hire more people here. We're, we're getting bigger. We need a partnerships guy, brand guy. So they're looking to hire this guy, Brandon Titel, who was coming from Postmates. Straight off the bat, he essentially got me on New Year's Rocking Eve with Jenny McCarthy. Okay, listen, I love games. And there's this live mobile trivia game that is taken America by storm. Good Morning America called HQ Trivia a game changer. And Time named it the number one app of the year. So we brought the host, Scott Rogowski, here so I could play it. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jenny. How you doing? They had us hold up in like a, a gap or something, just in, in holding, and, and they gave us all these warmers for our hands because it was that freaking cold. We couldn't even be out there. But it was ultimately very, very cool. And I, I think I did a trivia question with Jenny. It was about a, a minute hit or something. And, you know, I was still explaining what HQ was to the world. And a lot of people didn't really know it. Scott was able to make it back to Soho by 11.30 p.m. to host a special New Year's Eve countdown game. But so many people tried to play HQ that night that it just completely crapped out. Scott had to improvise for an uncomfortable amount of time while engineers tried to resuscitate the game. But I don't know who got it right. I can't see anything here. 
I'm walking here. I'm quizzing here. Do we have any answers? Do we know what's going on? It's New Year's Eve, guys. You've joined us here. We're clearly uh, over capacity at the moment. We love you. There was a lot of vamping that night, but we ended up rebooting about a half hour later and got about 750,000 people in the game, which was our highest at that point. From the outside, Rusty recalls watching in awe and wondering why, no matter how badly the app performed, people just kept coming back. About a week after that New Year's show, the app finally hit a million viewers. For me, if I played an app that had a glitch or crash or something, I would have turned it off and never played it again. But for most people, when the game crashed and we restarted it, we'd have our biggest game of all time on those nights. It was like people were like excited to watch it break. It just was so real that we were kind of holding this thing together with duct tape almost. Every once in a while, though, they pulled off a big show. And it was an electrifying feeling. There was the uh, the game that The Rock co-hosted. It's already popular, and then you have The Rock going on Twitter and telling everyone to watch him on it. That was probably the high point. In March 2018, the company signed this huge deal with Warner Brothers. In exchange for $3 million plus the cost of whatever prize money they gave away, HQ agreed to put on sponsored games for three of the studio's movies. One of those was Rampage, a science fiction-y action flick about giant genetically mutated wildlife starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. They had a $300,000 prize for the game, and they were able to book The Rock, who is basically the biggest celebrity on Earth, as a co-host. Tim Donnelly, who was a writer there at the time, remembers it being a whole thing. They flew Scott out to London to go record with him in a, I think they set up a studio in a hotel room, which was also cool because it's like, this coolest shit app thing that we invented can be packed into a suitcase and taken anywhere. The day it aired, the entire HQ office gathered around one of their giant vertical TV screens to watch. For the 288 players left, <sighs> with over 2.2 million to start, it all, it all boils all down, down to, to this. Yes. What do you smell out there? Who's just a This is it. The last question. What HQ is cooking? Dollars. What is HQ cooking what right now? 300,000. At Q15, folks. A whopping 2.24 million people watched that game. And 83 people walked away with $3,614 each. Scott, if you hadn't noticed from that clip, was clearly having the time of his life. Here's your answer. And we hey, three three winners, winners, baby! Spend 300K! <laughs> $300,000, yes! Oh, yeah! <laughs> There's nothing like that feeling of validation. The sense that you've really accomplished something and millions of people are paying attention and cheering you on. That's the intoxicating feeling of going viral. Soon after that, HQ employees came into the office to discover a surprise. Russ had bought this giant, giant bottle of champagne in like a wooden crate. And I don't even know what that costs. I don't know how much champagne was in there. I don't know if it's any good. And it, he had written on it, breaking case of 3 million, being like, when we hit 3 million views, we're going to pop this open. And at that point, we were hitting 2 million. So it seemed incredibly possible at the time. And I'd say within like two weeks of him buying that, it seemed that was a crazy idea. We're never going to get there. 
Next time on Boom Bust, HQ Trivia. Some of the Viners went to Vine and said, you've got to help us monetize this platform. You've got to give us these features that we've been asking for, or we're going to leave. They really just kind of rejected Twitter at every turn. Uh, they didn't want to be part of the culture. They didn't want to be part of the infrastructure technically. And I think that they really kind of rejected their host. I think because Twitter had so many other problems with Vine, it was always like, we'll worry about the monetization later. And then by the time it came time to really worry about it, they decided they decided to shut it down. Boom Bust HQ Trivia was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak, and produced by Noah Malalay, Isaac Lee, and Amanda Dobbins. It was story edited by Amanda Dobbins and sound designed by Isaac Lee. 